Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, a history of the Thirty Years' War. So let's get started. Today we're going to cover the Palatine lands and the re-Catholization of the HRE, or at least part of it. So while many people were scrambling to try to get lands in the Palatine, which, as a reminder, was the lands that were being fought over during that seven-part Habsburg Victory March, or at least part of that. Ferdinand was, was cautious and really in no hurry to divide that lands up. As a reminder, a lot of these things I'm talking about today aren't necessarily happening in 1623. They are going coming down in effect years later, as I'll cover in specifics. But this is where a lot of them get their origin, so this is why I'm covering it now. So Ferdinand realized he, if he just sequestered the land willy-nilly, it would give others cause to support Frederick. He also, at least at the beginning, wanted to keep options for reconciliation with Frederick open. Not that that was likely, but having options was nice. Spain had a claim to compensation for their involvement in that whole affair, so Ferdinand wanted that resolved peacefully and without any political disagreements. In 1621, he gave Maximilian the title, but Maximilian didn't want to publicly press or legitimize his claim until the Spanish would come to the table to negotiate for more of the Palatine lands. Pope Gregory XV was able to convince Spain to give up control of the Eastern Lower Palatinate, partially by pointing out that it was still going to be ruled by Catholics, so it wasn't like a Protestant was going to take over. What actually had helped Ferdinand was Tilly's campaign that had been fought against the Paladins, and the bits afterwards where they claimed a bunch of the major cities, including the political capital of the Palatine. Ferdinand, however, pardoned Anhalt, Hohenlohe, and other paladins and commanders, seeing that unity was a better option than continued hostility with them, continuing the trend from last week where he would lessen punishments, let people off, that sort of thing. Mansfield and Christian, who still held out, were continued to be offered clemency, but again, as shown, they really didn't take that. Like I just said, he really had no interest in executing these men. It just wasn't to his benefit, especially now that he had the clear control over the empire at this point. He tried to offer some restitution for secular lands and other lands that were taken during the war to the people who owned them, but that was only secular, not religious. So the church didn't really get land back, which they did not like, but there's not much they can do, seeing as Ferdinand was riding high and mighty at this point. The Palatine was divided up partially and given to other people. It was a fairly large territory, and there was more than enough for just Maximilian. Frederick's family, that had stayed loyal to Ferdinand and the empire, were given some land to reconcile them to Maximilian's new status as the elector of Palatine. Mines got a bunch of territory that it had lost in previous centuries. Other people got minor amounts of land, but as was obvious, Maximilian got the biggest gains, who, which were all of Upper Palatine and what was left of Eastern Lower Palatine by on February 25th, 1623. On that same day, the Palatine political title and prince was transferred to Maximilian. Several people, including Saxony and Spain and others, denounced it and did not recognize him as the ruler of the Palatine, seeing as it was a clear bias in favor of Maximilian by Ferdinand. As a reminder, Ferdinand owed him millions in money to cover his war debt based on the terms of he would join the war if Ferdinand was willing to cover his costs. Maximilian also held Upper Austria, which was part of that bargain, so Ferdinand had to play ball with him in order to get that back and pay him off. 
Johann George of Saxony, who earlier in the podcast was one of the people who fought against the northern German parts of the war, he got on board with recognizing the title after he was offered Lusatia instead of having his war debts covered by Ferdinand, which in the long run was probably a good thing because, you know, it's another piece of land that can make money. So Ferdinand was trying to use political capital and money to get people on his side in order to recognize Maximilian and considering Maximilian needed the support of the majority of the HRE princes and some recognition from external powers about it. One of the extreme things that Ferdinand did was during this time period, he also created 11 new princes, which was unheard of in that quantity all at once. For context, only four had been created over the last 70 years up to that point. Of note were three members of the Hohenzollerns, three Liechtenstein brothers, and Wallenstein. The Hohenzollerns have a whole medieval history behind them. It's complex. Fun, but complex, and not in the purview of this podcast. Many other princes saw this as packing the court with Habsburg supporters, so demanded that these new princes acquire sufficient lands before they could use their vote. Even if it didn't work completely, this did have the side effect of increasing loyalty to the Habsburgs in their court, since all these princely titles were coming from the Habsburgs and not the inherent land themselves, which, seeing as the Habsburgs were the primary arbiters of titles, it meant that they had to, again, suck up to the Habsburgs in order to get what they wanted. Ferdinand also raised over 100 people to higher positions, such as counts, which included Tilly as a one of those, which again increased more loyalty to the Habsburgs due to these people justifying their status as being raised by Ferdinand and the Habsburg dynasty. Unfortunately for Ferdinand, the lands that were taken during this war were not enough to cover all these people economically and land-wise, which will come up later, but for now, he had some set of positions, but they did not have the political capital that they might have later. Once again, this whole change reeks of... I say reeks of is a bad way to phrase it. This whole change reflects the raising of individuals rather than creation of institutions or modification of institutions. This was still in the pattern of putting the people under the thumb of the Habsburgs through political trickery and, and that sort of stuff. So not fundamentally changing the government, but a step forward to centralizing all the power underneath the Habsburgs. This ultimately disarmed the Palatine as a place that could be used to recruit rebel troops. Ferdinand, by this point, had gotten much more secure control over the HRE, so internal revolts were, at least in the south of the empire, were less likely to gain the momentum they had before, which was ultimately a smart long-term move, but the enemies coming at the HRE after this were not going to be internal. They were going to be external. Now, on to the big topic for this episode, recatholization. This is a catch-all term for the policy of this era, which was about expanding the Catholic influence to the nobility and the upper parts of society. One of the issues that came about from it was there's a lot of tension between those who wanted this sort of re-Catholization of the empire and those who preferred the pre-Reformation Catholicism, which I don't think would have been a good idea, but that was their position, not mine. And like reality does, a lot of political reality got in the way of fully implementing this policy everywhere. It wasn't fully systematic. It was more harsh in other areas, less harsh in others, maybe not even done in some areas, that sort of thing. The primary purpose of this process was to solidify the Catholic, Catholic political and elites. This was not intended to be for the general populace. They were encouraged to convert, but they were not forced at sword point or anything like that, at least at first. This method was kind of preferred by clerics who would rather peacefully convert people rather than, you know, with the sword. However, there were groups like the Jesuits who wanted 
wanted to more forcefully convert the populace, but they generally failed because they lacked local and political backing. Keep in mind, this is all the, the ground level stuff that will sort of come more detail later. The rulers of each land were more focused on the nobility and bigger people in the area. The common household person being a Protestant wasn't a big problem compared to their local leader being a Protestant. Ferdinand, I will say, was more willing to use force to get what he wanted in this time period, as he saw the Protestants as rebels. But Maximilian, who was in a much less secure position politically than Ferdinand, was unwilling to commit to that. One effect of this was, it allowed him to view and correct mistakes that Ferdinand and other people were making in their lands when it came to converting the population and the nobility. The process started, at least on Ferdinand's front, with attacking Protestant infrastructure, such as getting rid of pastors and and other church leaders. And then when those like schools and lands were unable to teach, they were given to the, the church, the Catholic Church specifically. Initially, Lutherans were less targeted for this. It was more Calvinists and Utraquists that tend to get targeted, but they became targets later. After this, the next step was targeting Protestant towns. For example, in Vienna and later Bohemia and Lower Austria, it effectively became a requirement to be a Catholic to get a citizenship. The practical effect of this was the constitutions of the towns were rewritten in a way that basically took away the rights the Protestants had, meaning many people would have had to flee or convert after six months. They weren't necessarily going to be killed on sight. It was, it would not be good in town if you were Protestant after that. Again, I think this was a mistake on his part, as this was going to create a lot of long-term instability and more hatred from other Protestant powers at the time, seeing as Protestantism had spread through a lot of northern Europe. Maximilian actually went about this in reverse, however. who He went after larger organizations and issued a general mandate in April 1628. By 1629, he had fully abolished the estates in his lands, with Frederick's permission, seeing as he was not in a strong position at that point, even if he had been legitimized by the the other princes of the empire, or enough of them at least. The funny thing is he actually in some ways went further than Ferdinand did, because Ferdinand did not officially destroy the estates, seeing as they were economic benefits to have. They still did taxes and such, so it didn't benefit them to destroy estates. His main focus was actually Calvinists, who were disliked by the Lutherans. If you go back to my, I think, of the be- yeah, the beginning of the podcast, when I overviewed religion, I talked about the difference between religions. Those two did not get along, considering Calvinists would steal from Lutherans for their converts rather than Catholics. The other thing is the institutions in Bavaria were also weaker, so they were easier to target and get rid of compared to Austria or Palatine. He also couldn't do as much systemically because he only controlled a part of the Palatine. Well, Maximilian, that is. So he kind of had a weak thing to deal with that in in any practical sense. The Spanish in the region basically left religion alone, and the Lutheran towns that surrounded Tilly were generally left alone as well, and the Bavarian authorities were more focused on raising war taxes to fully enforce any laws or any anything like this on the towns. So there was general policy, but it wasn't fully enforced in the general. There are other aspects of re-Catholicization that weren't about destroying institutions. Two of the major ones were they introduced the Gregorian calendar to the populace. Uh, that's the calendar that we all use nowadays, with some modification as time went on, but effectively that's what we use. And certificates to prove that you observed holidays and the like. Basically, you followed religious tenets. Those who missed mass or ate meat at the wrong times could be fined, but that was less rigorously enforced, especially if you were going to be expelled. Less people there means you less and less taxes, and there was a lot going on that the Bavarians couldn't really, again, get into enforcing the laws. I mentioned earlier, the primary targets were nobility, and in Bavarian lands in particular, there were a large number of families that converted. Around 93 families converted, and another 93 left, but their lands weren't actually taken, they just became absentee landlords. Taking their land was a step too far 
far because it wasn't a crime to be a Protestant in that sense, and it just was not worth it to set off that sort of that sort of problem. There also was less Protestant nobility in Bavaria, meaning they didn't have to push as hard as the monarchy of the empire in terms of their lands. The Bavarian estates were also kept intact based on the idea that economic concerns would keep them loyal, and the court would also offer higher positions only to Catholics, making converting a worthwhile prospect for the ambitious. For context, conversion to get positions of power wasn't exactly uncommon in Europe. The biggest example I can think of off the top of my head was Catherine the Great of Russia was Protestant, I believe, growing up. But when she and her family learned that only a Orthodox member could become a Russian ruler, she willingly converted to Orthodoxy to be able to become the Empress of Russia. On the Habsburg front, they also had a large number of nobility that were willing to convert. The Battle of White Mountain was a huge boost to that, as it was seen as God's favor that someone converted to save their lives or to get spoils from the battle. A notable example was one of the Nassau dynasty, aka the Dutch, the Dutch ruling family, had converted to Catholicism, and he was later involved in the negotiations at the end of the war. Others converted out of loyalty to the Habsburgs, which included many Hungarians, which also reduced the influence of Protestants in the Hungarian diet, which meant the Habsburgs had more control slash didn't have to worry about as much from their, that front. In Lower Austria, for example, only about a third of the 420 nobility were Protestant by 1650, which is a significant amount of them, significant amount of people that weren't Protestant. This did actually have a good effect on the stability of the empire due to so many nobility, again, either being loyal to the Habsburgs through claims of like giving gifts of land, etc., or just through religion. Again, there was always internal disputes, but not nearly as much issues that would cause another Bohemian revolt to happen. What actually assisted in the success of this program was the exile of a lot of Protestant nobility. A lot of them had already fled after White Mountain, and more had fled after the general policy that was being laid out. As years passed, hundreds of thousands of Protestants fled areas that were being highly enforced, and effectively they became emigrate communities within certain cities. These people also took what they could with them, that was mobile specifically, which meant that the local Catholics and other Protestants who stayed had a heavy tax burden on them now that there's less people paying it. Another side effect of why it's policy like this. A funny side effect that, as I was reading, was there wasn't enough priests to fill the churches, which, by 1640, about two-thirds of Bohemian churches didn't even have a, ch- a priest or pastor due to all the Protestants leaving. I mean, not super relevant, I just kind of, those funny little facts I, I like. The use of institutional power to create this did slow down the growth of Catholicism and conversion in the empire. There was an attempt to make it more attractive, with a notable example being Wallenstein's brother-in-law, Cardinal Ernst Albrecht von Harrach, who created the cult of the Bohemian cleric John of Neop. Muck? Neopmuk, who became a symbol of Habsburg piety in 1729 after he was canonized by the Catholic Church. On a less attractive front, the Jesuits burned around 10,000 Protestant books and then would distribute their own materials to try to convert people, but again, that found limited success. The authorities on all fronts realized they would need to be patient about conversion, especially with the adults. Maximilian and his lands told the Jesuits to focus on educating children, seeing as the adults weren't budging on that, and children would be easier to convert to Catholicism. It's effective indoctrination, what we call it nowadays, but it was just what the times were. I'm sure the Protestants would have done the same thing. Well, assuming they had the unity to do that. The long-term historical benefit slash effect of this was the heavily Catholic cultures of Bavaria, Austria, and the Czech became a staple of their culture as we know it. It's kind of fun 
funny when you look back on the origin of some of these things and you realize this was caused by events and sometimes sooner than you expected. Like, I thought the Catholic culture was older than that, but no. A lot of the big parts of the modern-day Catholic culture of that area came from this time period. This did have a negative effect on Protestant cultures, obviously, as just to destroying the existing structures and unity of those groups. Many of them fled to more receptive parts of the empire, which were at best cold to them in many places. The property left behind was also given to Catholics and other people in the towns. Refugee Protestants roamed the countryside, and many of them were forced to wait to be granted asylum into various cities, and were really only let into cities after the, a second wave of refugees from the 1630s forced cities to accept them. So that's an awkward statement, but it is what it is. The war at that point was going in full swing again, so of course there's more refugees being created. The restriction on refugees only loosened by 1650 in order to help the empire repopulate devastated areas, but the restrictions were put back again in, by the 1680s. This effectively let the Catholics get a further grip on society, making it harder for Protestants to reestablish themselves and have the same influence they had before. And a lot of these exiled Protestants were against peace with the Habsburgs, and they actually encouraged the Dutch to not renew the 12-year truce, seeing as why would we make peace with the enemy that kept punishing us? Frederick continued to be a staunch enemy of the Habsburgs, and became a symbol and or focus of that opposition, even if he wasn't an effective leader. So ultimately, the cause of Bohemia and the Paladins were done, but they became a cause and a rallying cry for Sweden and Denmark to later justify themselves in the war. So recatholization, despite many hiccups, did have a long-term effect effects, even if it was more on the nobility and political side of the fronts, but it had a lot of long-term effects on society. I want to thank you for listening in, and I hope you're enjoying my podcast. Please spread the word, review it if you can. Next week, we cover a brief history of Denmark as we sort of get to them, and I just want to make sure you guys have a little bit of context before we jump into Denmark joining the war, as that is coming up very soon. My social media links will be in the description box or in the links themselves. You can email me at 3 decot at gmail.com. Reminder that I have a Patreon, and I'll see you guys next time.